Hey, everybody, we're here with our guest whose timing being with us is wonderful. We're, we're thrilled to have him. It's taken a couple times to make this happen, but here we are. We have Amir Kabir with us today. And as you may or may not know, Amir is a general partner at Aviate Ventures. Welcome to our podcast, Amir. Welcome, Amir. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. Uh, good, good to be on this podcast. I know we've been trying to do this last time. I had to kind of get a rain check, but I'm happy to be here now. We're glad you're here. And you brought a note from your parents saying, <laughs> please excuse Amir. He has a cold. Please, please so. allow him on. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Please excuse him. So if it wouldn't have been for that, probably wouldn't have let you back on. But uh, <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Great to have you here. Aviate Ventures is part of Allianz. Is that correct? Uh, yes and no. Right. So maybe give you a background. So Aviate Ventures started uh, three to four years ago. George, my uh, my other partner, started the practice. We are backed by Allianz, but we are not a corporate VC. Right. So we don't you know, uh, have the corporate mandate or corporate CVC mandate that others have. We're just backed by Allianz. Uh, we're kind of uh, a generalist fund, as you also can see from, from our investments. We have three areas that we kind of focus on. One is the enterprise world. Um, one is healthcare and healthcare services. And the third one that I was brought on board is to kind of build out the fintech practice, which entails insurtech as well. And then we also dabble into deep tech, which could be anything from you know, sending satellites up to the moon or, you know, autonomous vehicles or like hopefully in the future flying humans. I'm just joking you right now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's kind of maybe, yeah, that's a, that's a deep tech area. But we mostly focus on the early stage of a company. I kind of define it of like maybe first or second check in if possible, right? Uh, try to be very hands on with the companies to look at the background of the partners you know all of us have somehow been entrepreneurs one way or the other have built businesses before have dabbled into the entrepreneurship world um and you know bring the kind of expertise in their respective areas in terms of like healthcare or like the enterprise the fintech and i mean my partner george he has a phd in physics so i think he knows how, how that world works um and he dabbles into that world and others and, you know, we try to, you know, invest mostly, I would call it C to Series A stage, which, you know, hopefully uh, we'll go back to these kind of uh, designated uh, stages of investment because the last couple of years, you know, a Series A company could have also been a, you know, Series C company, right? Given mm -hmm. how much right. they have money yeah. they've raised. Right. But, you know, typically do like two to $3 million initial check, right? Um, I've done five hundred thousand dollar checks, uh, and I'm and I'm and I've done four million dollar checks. So anywhere in that range, you know, we try to play in, um, and you know, lead rounds as much as possible. Very conviction driven in that process. You know, very either you know having a conviction around a topic that we dig, dig into, try to understand more and find a company, or you know, we come across a company and think like this is a very interesting area and try to understand more and go from there. So. I've got to ask you a question. We've had sure. a number of VCs on, talked about all their different, wh where they like to come in early is not uncommon. Tell us w why for our audience, I mean, other than the obvious of it's nice to get in at a million dollars and then the company sells for $4 billion. Sure. sure. 
right? That's obvious. But why early? Why be early? For us and for me specifically, speaking for myself and probably also for uh, Aviate in general, I think we want to be early because we want to help build companies as well, right? So, uh, and that means like, you know, there's, there's a big range of what it means to build a company, right, from, from the outside. But I think for us, it's like, hey, we have some sort of an expertise uh, on the team uh, with, with the people that are on the team that have, you know, dabbled in, the, in those sectors for decades or two decades, right? So we want to, we have seen something, right? And we want to be helpful by, you know, navigating those startups early on um, and, you know, um, help them grow from, from the early stages to like the later stages, right? And I think for me personally also, it's, in, it's the exciting part, right? I think, you know, uh, the unknown and like, you know, hey, you know, being really hands-on with someone, helping them navigate. And that, that's, I think, the exciting part. Whereas when you go late stage, you know, most of the stuff, I mean, quote unquote, has been figured out, right? And uh, hopefully in the later stages, people, uh, companies have product market fit. And then from there, you know, there is a different skill set and different thinking around the company. Whereas if you go from zero to one, or even let's say from one to two, you know, there's a different kind of skill set and thinking needed and how you navigate, you know, processes, people, companies, fundraising, and so on and so forth. So I think that's the exciting part for me when it comes down to early stage that I like. Um, and just working with like, you know, highly, you know, ambitious entrepreneurs that, you know, really want to build something and are very hands-on and scrappy. I think that's, that's the exciting part. And obviously, like if you get an early, I mean, I don't know the statistics, but you know, there is very far and few in between who get in very early and eventually make like the 10 billion dollar exit. Right. So, uh, realistically speaking, Getting those is great, but you know it's it's not as easy as, as everybody it's, thinks. <laughs> it's it's right. not it's not where the bread and butter is. I mean, the bread and butter is what I mean when when you get in early with a company for like you said a couple million dollars. Do you have a specific ambition that you're after? Do you have a number in your head? We hope it that we see that this could go to this point. Uh, yeah, I, I think this is like, you know, a question always, right? And I feel, and I have this conversation with my partners and others, and when I think about it myself, I think there's a couple of things that have to come together to come up with a number, right? When you when you invest in a company, you obviously look into a market and see maybe what have been other maybe acquisitions have been in, in that sector, right? And how potentially this company could end up, right? And once you do that, like, you know, you, you try to understand if I put in, let's say, $2 million at, let's say, $20 million pre, I get uh, a $20 million post, I get 10% of the company. But if other companies have been just acquired, let's say, for $100 million, $200 million, does it make sense for me to take that risk early on uh, to, to put in that much money and just have a kind of, I mean, $200 million exit? don't get me wrong is great right for an entrepreneur or for like anybody who invests early stage right but yeah. you have to also think about your fund size you know does it make sense to take that risk and does is it, or is it better to wait for another company who has maybe more upside potential right these are all the things to think about uh, and obviously we look at markets and always hope that these companies will be eventually like half a billion billion dollars or even more acquisition targets or companies or ipos right you hope for that but very far and few happen. And I think obviously the last 
five, six years in InsurTech, we were all kind of blurred a little bit because a lot of companies in the InsurTech world were easily at a billion dollar companies. So now yeah. the question is, can the next wave of InsurTechs that are actually in a similar field really be a billion dollar company, right? So long answer, but I think it's really hard to, to, to go into that and be like, if, if you, it really depends on the entry, entry price, right? And then what the exit price is, right? So if you get in, again, at the very early on and with, with a small check and you have some meaningful ownership because, you know, it, it, a lot of entrepreneurs also make the mistake and be like, oh, this is the only round I'm going to raise. I'm not going to need money anymore. I'm like, well, I, you know, I have, I have not seen many companies that have done this, but okay. So there's going to be more capital coming, more dilution is going to come to you, right. to me, to everybody else. So uh -huh. you have to put in more capital does it make sense for the outcome that I that we're expecting? Tell me this, what draws you to a prospective company? What are you looking for? What sparks your interest and, and makes you want to start looking at investing in a company? Yeah, I think the way I look at it, I mean, are we talking, I think that's, that we probably talk about InsurTech obviously on this podcast, right? Um, so okay. I think I spoke, spoke about this and, uh, for me, uh, you know, having, having been in the InsurTech world now around, I think, 10 years now, um, when I, when I, when I did my first investment, you know, the question for me right now is like, we have seen the first wave of InsurTech, you know, uh, version one, which kind of paved, um, the way for, for what people are building right now. Uh, the first wave kind of, and I, and I put like, um, put like a timeline out there. I don't know if you guys saw that the last hundred years in insurance that I kind of put together to understand like, where do we come from? Where are we going? Right. And what has happened and how did, how did this whole insure tech thing happen? Right. Right. And how does the technology came into play? And it's, it's not really something that new, like technology has been around within the insurance world for quite some time. But I think during like the 2000 era, uh, 2010 specifically, I think Metro Mile was like one of the first kind of insure techs, I think the Climate Corp, uh, you know, started that, and then um, David Friedberg kind of went to Metro Mile, and then from there, you know, all of these kind of MGA plays started, mm -hmm. and the first wave kind of focused on, I always call it the traditional lines of businesses, as we have seen, yes. right? You know, home auto renters. I think they were probably the easiest way to kind of show that there is a way to build kind of a digitized venture backable company. Right. Yes. And, um, I think for me now the focus has kind of shifted in, in the sense of like, I'm still interested in digital distribution. I'm still interested in new products and new risk models and stuff, but mostly on, um, you know, um, specialty or, um, you know, niche kind of businesses, right. As you can also probably see from my, from my investments, like I've invested in, uh, manufactured homes insurance, right. Which right. I saw cover tree. Cover tree, yes, which which for people is like, well, it's home insurance. Well, I'm like, no, it's not. It's kind of different. Like, you know, mm -hmm. try to get it, but you'll probably be ending up uh, with a bunch of like agents calling you up because there is no digital product. And cover tree is kind of really the first digital product out there that kind of digitized the manufactured home insurance process, right? Then I've invested in WAX, which is collectibles insurance, right? Mm -hmm. So if you are a collector, you have, um, you know, watch collection and, I don't know, bags and whatnot, art. You know, it's really hard to get insurance for that, right? You, people think, oh, my home insurance is going to cover that. Well, I'm like, probably not, right? So they're not going to, if you have five Rolex watches and someone breaks into your home, 
and you tell your insurance afterwards, well, my five Rolex watches are gone. They're like, well, cool. Like, you know, good. <laughs> sorry. Bummer. <laughs> yeah, sorry. sorry to hear it. Bummer. Yeah. Here's, so, here's the phone number where you can buy new ones. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. And get, get in line, by the way, because uh-huh. like the, the wait time for Rolex is increasing. Uh, yeah. But yeah, so again, like niche kind of uh, specialized insurance there as well. So these topics are kind of interesting to me where I think, again, you know, technology makes sense and it will make a difference, right? So right. because, Agreed. I mean, how, why, why did these MGAs start it back in the days, traditional MGAs, like carriers well, like, I don't want to take this risk. I don't, I don't understand this risk, right? So let's, let's, you know, build like maybe an MGA around that and see where this goes or someone started an MGA around that. And if that goes well, we'll, we'll you know, we think about it or maybe acquire it or like build on top of it. I, 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 you know, I totally agree with you. I think that, um, you know, 1.0 or whatever you want to call it in InsureTech um, went after, why can't we disrupt these incumbents and um, and what they found was the incumbents weren't as useless (laughs) and and out of of date as what everybody thought and consumer behavior maybe was a little misjudged as well. Switching behavior was, was not fully appreciated. And, but when, but if you go after these niches like like you're suggesting you can build a big important valuable company in that niche because insurance is so vast it doesn't have to be every home in america to make a big splash yeah yeah absolutely It it can be just a piece of what's inside of a home yeah I mean, the, the way I think about it is like, and I thought about it a lot. I'm like, why did InsurTech happen, right? Let, let's go back to the first principles approach, right? Good why why did, it, why did InsurTech happen? And I think, you know, again, I have no background in insurance. I have no background in banking. Like I, can't, I got into this from my tech background, you know, and I've learned along the way and I've seen along the way and I spoke to a bunch of people. I think looking back at first principles is that a lot of people believed and still believe that, you know, insurance is not really customer centric, right? Customer centricity has been missing, right? And, you know, when you think about that, carriers define us as policyholders and not as customers. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So maybe that kind of gives an indication of what they're thinking about us, right? And maybe a lot of people also thought like, hey, you know, cool, there's no customer centricity. We can just apply the same rules of customer centricity that has been has been around for other sectors such as uh, consumers, marketplaces, and whatnot to insurance, but then quickly realized, well, that's not going to work out as well because, you know, the thinking around insurance is not the same thinking that people have around Amazon, right? They don't want to talk with the insurance carrier every day. They don't, they don't need the 24-7 support. From my perspective, there is maybe two or three touch points that are important. One is obviously the buying process, right? So how can I get my insurance and how good, fast, cheap, whatever it is. The second most important, I think, is that if I have a problem, I want it to be solved and not round you know, run around circles. Mm -hmm. And the third, which is somewhere in between maybe is that if, if, you know, uh, if I want to renew or like there's price increases, there's there a chance to, you know, think about insurance as well. 
and you know me my, myself being being in insurtech for so long right I see it myself i have uh, progressive i think auto insurance and i have home with someone else but you know it's i don't go around and like start shopping stuff right so people think always like people go shopping i feel like the people who go shopping are actually the worst people you don't want that <laughs> right so uh you know when i think about myself with my car insurance i i bought my car almost two years ago and i have i think four thousand miles down right i don't even drive so i'm probably the best risk that they can ever have right, right? <laughs> but you know i and i don't shop around and i'm like it's not i always tell people it's not worth it my insurance is now it is at 130 dollars a month and then you know this new startup comes along and be like i give you a better price i'm like cool what is it well 121 I'm like, well, do you think I want to change my insurance just because I get $9 off a month? I yeah. know I'm not going to do that stuff. And you will probably also not give me the half price off because it's impossible like to do that. Uh, you're losing money. That basically indicates losing money. So I always wonder like, uh, what is the reason here to, to do insurance going to the first principles approach? Why are people, or why this insure tech wave started? Right. And it was, I think it was because people, think and I, and I agree with that like insurance is not customer centric but it's most of the time needed and mandated so you have to have it right so how can you make it appealing to the customer without like you know making it annoying at the same time and now the the whole thinking is around embedded insurance right i mean embedded insurance for better or for worse has been also around for decades like affiliate right. insurance or affiliate sales have been around for so long and why embedded is so interesting right now, I think, is because technology is advanced, right? We have so much access to different kind of data sources, which were not given back in the days. And maybe with those data sources, you know, you can really build new insurance products or make an existing insurance products more interesting, more uh, price, uh, 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 pr Attra pricing more better. Yeah. Attractive. And, so and, attractive. Right. and distribute in a w way more interesting way or a very interesting way i should say correct yeah mm -hmm. so with that what what type of embedded insurances interest you is it home buying auto buying what do you what are you seeing i think all of the above right because i think if you can make it really seamless and embedded which i have not seen yet right there's always a startup that says i'm embedded but I think the biggest challenge with this embedded, and again, all of these companies have that challenge. When you think about an MGA, the challenge is like, you need to have capacity, you need to acquire customers, you need to do yada, yada, yada. So, okay, fair enough, I get it. If you have the embedded side, you'll be like, hey, I don't have that because the customers are there. You know, I don't have to acquire them, but you kind of are on the hook with the partnership side because uh, if you're my partner and you tell me, sure, I, I embed your insurance product, the problem I have as the guy who is the embedded insurance guy is that someone else comes along and tells the guy, listen, you're getting 5% commission here, I give you 9 The right. guy's going to switch, right? So that's the problem you're facing over there, right? So uh, I think this is the biggest challenge with those embedded plays is that, sure, you can get into those and you can get those partnerships and they work with you. And, you know, you get basically zero customer acquisition cost and you share kind of your commission with them. But if someone else comes along and gives them 2% more, their incentive You're, is like, cool, I take that. Right. A race to the bottom. It's yeah. uh, like, like, it's interesting, though, because I'm just thinking about the experience on Amazon today. It's not uncommon on Amazon when you buy something 
that you get that another a, a screen comes up first and says, do you want to protect that? Right. Do you want to protect your purchase for two years for this Correct. much money? And, um, uh, it's, it's certainly pervasive. Um, you know, what's happening with embedded, you're seeing it on, you know, in retail. Um, uh, of course it's always been, or it's been around for a long time in travel. Um, Correct. Yeah, that's the uh, best example. That's that that's that's an example of someplace where it works and it's really easy and it's and it's truly embedded. Correct. Is, are there other applications that you're seeing that are clever, creative, new that are coming forward today and embedded? Um, so let, let's talk, let's touch base on that because I think there is a lot of opportunity there, right? Specifically on the travel side. Um, I think the travel insurance embedded that we have seen for the last decades, right, has been a very static approach to that, right? Because it doesn't matter when you go on United right now, you buy a flight and at the end, you always get this pop-up like, hey, do you want insurance? But as far as I know, and I'm 99% sure, it's a very static approach to that, meaning it doesn't matter if Rob takes it, Amir takes it, Alicia takes it, whoever we're probably going to get the same price and it probably doesn't don't take into the equation of where you're coming from, where you're going right. to, right? right? And so on and so forth. So I think that's the problem where actually that kind of insurance has been very unprofitable for some time, specifically within the whole um, COVID-related uh, time, right? Sure. Um, you know, but I think I've seen a bunch of startups that are really innovating in that space. And I, I go back to be like uh, what I said before, given that, you know, technology has advanced, you know, we can make way better decisions right now. I've seen startups, for example, in that travel insurance space, which I think are very interesting. They basically take into account who are you as a customer, they have their data, and they take into account where you're coming from, where you're going, what's the duration of the time, what's the duration of the flight, what's, you know, what's the geopolitical situation in the country you're going into, like mm -hmm. all sorts of things, right? And basically give you a risk-adjusted price, of like, hey, you know, you want to insure this flight, right? You, whatever, or you insure your travel or vacation, it's $99 instead of like the static $19.99, right? Mm -hmm. So on top of that, other companies have been uh, emerging that are now building, you know, kind of uh, micro insurance on top of these embedded plays and travel, meaning, you know, you go golfing every, every day or every week, right? Or you go to, to the amusement park and once you buy your ticket, and it's a it's a rainy day, right? You know, you don't want to go because it's like it's it's not fun to go with the whole family to amusement park. It's raining all day, so they give you an option to buy insurance with like you know specific probabilities based on weather and you know destination and so on and so forth. And that's that's I think a very like interesting and you know great approach to insurance, a new 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 insurance product approach where you can really target the consumer and guarantee them you know, some sort of a product that hasn't really been there before, right? And it's not static. You know, I, I've never really thought about customizing the, the travel insurance like that, but I think that's a big market. There's something really there. It's underwriting. It's, it's, just more, underwriting. it's Yeah, you're right. It's not just saying, hey, here's you're 1999. You're into the underwriting of it. Because maybe Correct. that person doesn't ever cancel. Maybe they maybe they fly 10 times a month and they never cancel. And Correct. they might buy a... A travel insurance policy for very little and it could be very profitable you just never know Absolutely. yeah so with all this with all these startups all this new insurance i want to go into a little bit 
about the money and what's going on in this world. And we see things going on all the time. Uh, we're hearing about banks. We're hearing about massive layoffs at big companies, big companies who invest in smaller companies and invest in funds uh, who, who, can, who can help startups. So first I want to I ask, is there still money out there? Are people still investing in these startup companies? And what does that atmosphere look like? Uh, environment look like to you? Yes, absolutely. I think there is there is a lot of money still out there because I mean, when you look at like venture funds have raised enormous amounts of money the last couple of years, and still there is news out there as we speak. You know, this fund raised this money. This fund just raised this big big uh, fund. Um, and frankly speaking, Aviate we're actively investing, right? So uh, and we're just like. We have just still a similar approach that we had before, meaning like we are very, you know, thorough. We're like diligence and we like really focus on like finding, you know, does is it worth it to take the risk or not, right? I think the last right. couple of years, a lot of people, you know, think about it. Term sheets were closed in 24 hours. I mean, give me a break. Like, you know, I mean, sure, you might know the entrepreneur for 10 years and that's that's like a extreme situation where you can give him a term sheet because you followed his path for like so long and you know this person and you know the company fair enough but i've seen also like you know uh companies getting term sheets within 24 hours where i'm like wow how does it possible even if you even if you don't know the founder in the company and you know the market it's still like not <laughs> a risk adjusted uh, approach to that so yes there is still money out there i think a lot of things, again, go back to the first principles approach where people, you know, try to understand problems more and more in depth, that they spend more time with entrepreneurs, right? They, the diligence time is not uh, one week anymore. It's now a couple of months, right, where you really try to dig into and understand, like, what is the problem that they're solving? Is there really a problem that they're solving? Uh, what is the solution that they're offering? What is the product out there? And, you know, uh, I think, and I've seen it, and I've seen it myself because when I look at some insure techs, I see them, or like hear, hear about them. You know, they're they're focusing on a specific sector, which I think is exciting. Then I speak to them for one uh, for for thirty minutes, forty five minutes. I think the product is exciting, and I get excited myself. And then obviously, I dig deeper over the next couple of days and weeks, and then my excitement goes down because I learn more that you know that that what they have built is great but the the market is not big enough the product is not really taking off distributors don't really think that you know there's a huge opportunity and i think that what has been missing the last couple of years because people got excited and they're like wow this is great and like cool we're just going to do it and then realize over time <laughs> so they're building uh, answers to a solution that's not a problem correct almost yeah. most of the time and uh, or they were overcapitalized would then go and find a solution right so uh -huh. um yes the market is still there but i think it's it's really hard right now if you're raising a series a or even a b i think the b is probably even the hardest on the seed stage side i think still there is momentum and it's quote unquote i say quote unquote easier to raise right uh because obviously you know when you raise two to three million dollars at a low valuation, you know, the, the hurdle, it might be lower and people, again, goes back to like, what are you betting on is mostly the, the person, right? Mm -hmm. um, but if you go for an A, 
you know, there's more scrutiny around you of like, hey, okay, you have you have a product, you, you, you say you kind of have product market fit, and show me what the numbers look like. And the numbers might look good now, but also show me what the pla plan or path to profitability will look like for you within the next two, three years. And, you know, show me what, what's co what comes next. So all of these questions have to be answered because the excitement of like, oh, cool, you sold your first policy, quote unquote, on InsureTech again, or you sold your first hundred policies, don't justify for you to go and raise another $40 million round, right? But you've seen that. You've seen that. I've seen it the last couple of years. I haven't seen it now, to be honest. So, I mean, mm -hmm. I'd be surprised if someone with a couple of policies has raised a big amount of money. Um, you know, there's been some news going around the last couple of days of companies that raised the Series B with a big round. But I would love to see the numbers behind that as well. And I mm -hmm. hope and I'm sure that people uh, or th th those companies have the numbers. But I think that's where we, you know, going to right now. When we started investing in InsureTech 10 years ago, we didn't have any comparables, right? I mean, it was hard to understand where this is going. And people, I remember like when we were at Munich, we were debating like, what are, what is the biggest we can think about? Well, like if you can get to a billion dollar exit, man, wow, that would be amazing, right? And then fast forward, like Lemonade and all of these guys, five, six, seven billion. I'm like, what the hell is going on? Yeah, how does right. that, how does that, how is two and two? Right. Seven. 200% <laughs> loss ratio. Well, yeah, that's, that's, yeah. forget about that. But again, like, it's just that, that's where I think, you know, all that, that the hype cycle was where like people were like, okay, well, we'll get more than a billion. Well, cool. We can underwrite a series A at like 500 million pre, no problem because we can get to 5 billion. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and I think mm -hmm. that thing whole shifted because we have now more, way more information on hand, way more also information in terms of exits on hand right. and public companies. Right. So people make adjustments on that. Go, but going back to what Lee asked, like, what do you, how do you underwrite? Like now I have way more data to underwrite and justify if an investment makes sense or not. And, and I also think that, you know, the ecosystem better of what's sure. out there, like going back to the incumbents for a minute. I mean, the incumbents are smart and for often well-run companies, even though, you Absolutely. know, even though we, we, we who serve them, as you know, Lee and I, we work on that. We're service providers. We work on the claim side. You get frustrated that they're slow and they're methodical. But the fact of the matter is they've also been in existence for 150 years. Absolutely. And I always say that. And they're making money and, yeah. and they know how to do that, regardless of our perceptions. And, Absolutely. And they're not just going to lay back and say, you know what, why don't you just take this market? I'll go away. No. That's not going to happen. And, and they're even doing smart things like, like Aviate's an example. You're partnered up with a major international insurance company um, as a funding source. So the, the ecosystem is clear. Where's, where are the hot spots? Where are the trouble spots? Where are the areas, maybe not specifically of opportunity, but where there's also a dead end? 100%. I mean, going back to, like, as you said, the last hundred years, right? When you think about how long it took, you know, Geico or Progressive to go, you know, it took Geico 10 years to go from 1 million policy to 16 million policies, right? I mean, that means like, hey, they're doing something in a right approach and a slow and methodical approach, right? And not like I'm, I'm adding a million dollar policies per month to, to my book. of You can do that. Everybody can do that. But do you want that? It's the other question. Mm -hmm. Right. 
And we see some of these 1.0 companies struggling through that. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. As you know, like once you build a book of business, it's just so hard to to switch that from, let's say, unprofitable to profitable in a short amount of or even medium amount of time or even ever. (laughs) And I fear the carnage isn't over, but but you're not seeing those kind of plays as much today, right? I mean, the, the companies that are coming to you aren't I'm going to try to be the next state farm, just as an example, but rather this little piece over here that state farm isn't serving or is, is ignoring or the state farms of the world. That's where our opportunity is. So InsureTech has become more focused. Is that a fair statement? Um, Yes and no, frankly speaking. I think, yes, there is much more happening around the specialty side of insurance, right, where maybe the big carriers are not really focused on. And rightfully so, because, again, going back to manufactured home insurance and cover tree, when I started looking into this, I got super excited because, you know, you would say, well, it's just a 10 to $12 billion market in terms of insurance just for uh, for manufactured homes. However, there's like, you know, Actually, businesses associated with like manufactured homes, like a lot of people who live in those communities have RVs, have motorboats, have motorcycles. So the market gets way bigger around that. But what, what is exciting is that, you know, again, as you mentioned, the traditional carriers don't care because they're like, well, I have a hundred billion dollar book in terms of like a traditional home that two billion dollars over there. Well, someone else will figure it out. And if I'm mm-hmm. excited about it, I'm going to buy it. And that's what I'm hoping, right? So Coventry right. gets like 10% of that market and then maybe they get acquired then for a real amount of money, right? Or actually IPO. I think a best, best comparison for the specialty insurance lines is if you look at Kinsale Group. Have you, have you looked at, at Kinsale Group? They're like a specialty kind of brokerage carrier. If you look at those numbers, they only focus on specialty insurance. I mean, the combined ratio is at 75%, right? Wow. I mean, that's what you want. Yeah, that's, 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 that's making money. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I'm banking on. And frankly, in the insurance business as a whole, you should be able to make money. That's the goal. (laughs) Uh I mean, that's the goal. It's happened for uh, many years now. Many years. It it might be getting hardest for the incumbents, right? Between what's happening with auto and what's happening with property and inflationary pressures, they're under tremendous pressure. Um, Absolutely. You know, tremendous yeah. uh, profitability pressure. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, also in terms of not only that, but, you know, thinking about how the world is changing too, right? I mean, going back to auto, what you mentioned, like as of today and probably for, for a good, good amount of time going forward, you, me, and everybody who drives a car will be the insured person. But what happens if you really go to the autonomous side? What happens to that whole book of business? right in the future so these thinking uh, emerge as well with carriers of like what do we do over there how do we offset like when nobody's driving anymore how do we get those premiums in how do we offer justify that and so on and so forth where where does that where does that go that's a whole fascinating we'll have you back for that we'll have you back for that (laughs) conversation that's that's a whole arc that we could do of a number of uh uh, podcasts and 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 not let's be realistic Let's go 20 years forward, right? Because, you know, there's going to be a whole transition and uh, there's that's a whole conversation of how, how the transition is going to happen. But once it gets there, yeah, it's yeah. it's a it's a different world than what we live in today. Let's 
Let, let's talk for a minute about the world we live in today. Sure. We're recording this um, in relative proximity to the trouble that Silicon Valley Bank got into. Sure. Which is a endemic of the larger problem that exists today in banking, either in reality or perceptually. And as we're all learning or seeing once again, perception is a super important piece of, of what goes on in banking. How safe do you feel can determine the future of a bank? For um, sure. So, which is kind of wild because you'd never think that, you know, it's all dollars and cents, but no, it's also about emotion too. So, yeah. but let's talk about for a few minutes. First of all, can you share at all some stories that you've heard or had uh, to do with what what's come down with the Silicon Valley Bank uh, yeah, yeah. issue? Yeah, so I mean, uh, it, it was quite some news for everybody, obviously, but I think there, there was a lot of things in the making because I'm also kind of quite active on Twitter and I feel like a lot of news break out on Twitter way before they break out somewhere else or even on Reddit, right? So people were have been like, you know, pointing out to those issues earlier on. And I think it just like uh, extrapolated uh, one day when, you know, the, uh, this, the thing happened with SVB. I think in general, it's, it's, it's kind of a bad and sad day for VCs, entrepreneurship and startups. I mean, SVB has been around, has been a core pillar of the VC industry. And not only that they, you know, are kind of the core bank, for, for this ecosystem, I think what people are trying to say is that they understand us, right? They understand if you tell them, listen, I raised $2 million from AV8 and I need a bank. They're like, sure, here is your bank, right? Now try to go to the traditional incumbents, uh, the Bank of Americas and uh, JP Morgans and tell them, well, I raised $2 million. I gave 10 percent of my company. I need an account for that. They'll be like, okay. Well, what do we do now? Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's, I think, the biggest problem that people are shocked about because there is nobody to go to, more or less, to be like, hey, can I bank with you? Which, per se, was also kind of a risky endeavor as well because everybody was kind of banking with them, more or less, on the early stage right. side or mid stage side. That's one thing. And I think from the VC perspective, too, you know, you had this confident or a like confidant on the banking side where you know your startups can go to and, you know, get banked with, but also, you know, the whole notion of uh, venture debt, right. Was, is, is a big topic as well, because venture debt has been also a core pillar of the venture industry and the financing industry for startups as well. Right. There's, there's one way to raise money, which is equity. Right. But the venture debt side has been also a very important pillar for startups and the ecosystem. Tell us what venture debt is. So venture debt is basically means like you get a, you get a loan from the bank and that's based on you, the startup, what you're building, maybe the traction you have, and also how much equity you have raised that, you know, make it a more securitized approach for the bank to give you a loan. But most of these companies that get venture debt, and it's a different topic we can talk about, have no meaningful revenue, or if they have revenue, they're not profitable, right? So how do you service that debt is always a question. But it was always a way for startups to extend run rate, right, one way or the other, in mm -hmm. times where 
you know, financing have been tough or fi- like or like a bridge approach to financing as well, right? Mm-hmm. Because some startups, you know, might be at a cusp of like a series A and a B and, you know, they're like, hey, if I would have had just like $3 million more million to like go from, you know, this stage to the other, I could easily raise the B, right? So that's where like venture debt comes into play as well. And, um, you know, so that's basically kind of, quote unquote, evaporated more or less as well, because SVB was also a core pillar of providing venture debt to these startups mm-hmm. for, for, for like, you know, very favorable terms as well, right? Uh, because again, you go back to a traditional bank and say, hey, I have no revenue. I have a great product. I have sold a couple of million dollars of something. I have $3 million in equity and I need another $3 million in debt to, you know, go further. Every banker will be like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> I don't understand what you're talking about. So how do you securitize that as an early stage company that might have some IP or not, might have some sort of a product that you can sell? So SVB, again, was the, com- was the bank that understood all of that, right? And so... How do we go forward from here? I, I don't know. I'm, yeah. I mean, by no means. Have so it's I, a big hit. It, it's a big hit to the to the ecosystem to have that yeah. understanding, supportive presence gone evaporate in in yeah. in a matter of days. Now we we have the news about first citizens overnight. Does that? I guess that provides a little bit of hope. But but again, I mean, first citizens an old established bank. Uh, from a different, really, I mean, I mean, I mean, let's, let's take it back a little bit. I mean, forget about, I mean, it sounds weird. Forget about the venture ecosystem and SVB. I think the whole, like, think about the average Joe and you and me and whoever who is banking, right? This is like, how do we, how does the government, how do we deal with that in general? Right. Because as of now, and uh, why this happened with all of the other banks too is with the so-called bank run that everybody's alluding to because people didn't feel safe with those banks anymore and thought they can uh, bank with like the bigger institution that are quote unquote like you know bank run free or you too know collapse to free too big to fail right and I think an interesting fact here is too going back to SVB is that a lot of interestingly enough venture back companies these neo banks have been emerging as the rescuers or mercies, right? Because, you know, startups, um, uh, startup neobanks that have been funded by the VC industry, uh, startups are not going to them to bank with them uh, and, and so on and so forth. So there's been a whole shift in the market. I, I saw a pie chart actually, I don't know, yesterday, a couple of days ago where, you know, deposits have been flowing into from these startups. You know, obviously it's the big banks, but then also a couple of smaller like venture backed neo banks are in the mix as well, right? Um, mm. So I don't know where we go from here. I mean, there has been a consortium of VCs that came together, like the big, you know, tier one, tier two, tier three, whatever you want to call them, uh, that have really big dollars, the big brand names, and so on and so forth, and tried to put a statement out there of like, Hey, we support SVB. We're going to tell our venture back companies to go back to the SVB. So I think the notion is, you know, let's see how that evolves. Again, I think that the plane is still in the air. It hasn't landed yet. Right. right? We don't know what's going to happen as of now with all of these banking entities and specifically SVB. Um, you know, I, again, I have friends at SVB and people I have known for years good friends that, you know, are there. So I hope that it is, it resolves for them as well, because 
again, like these guys have been working most. uh, That's an interesting fact as well. And I, and I saw that lately, most of the people that you see on LinkedIn, when you look at how long they have been with SVB, that shows also how interesting and cool this company has been because most of these people have been with SVB for 10, 15 years, right? Uh, Right. As managing directors and so on and so forth. So it's kind of sad. So what does it mean? Does it mean anything other than the effect maybe on the startups, but what does it mean for the venture community? Is the banking and the health of the bank critical to what you guys do? Like you were saying, it, it was wonderful to have a supportive partner to have a debt facility provider, but is it is what's going on in the banking world? Does that affect the VC world? Oh, for sure. I mean, a lot of actually VCs and like emerging managers that, that, are, that so-called emerging managers that raise new funds or new funds in general have been banking with SVB as well, right? So they were also the banking entity for venture capital funds. So that's also another topic right there, right? It's not only the startups, but also the venture ecosystem as a whole. So um, I don't know how that's going to be affected, how, and I mean, the third topic too, I don't, I don't know if you guys saw that, is that SVB was also a big LP and capital provider to funds again, right? So there's a whole interwined situation here that, you know, people are trying to solve one way or the other. Uh, I think the easiest problem quote unquote to solve is where do these startups going to bank right sure they're going to find another entity cool Mm -hmm. someone is going to find a bank that's going to take the money of startups but you know the bigger topic is that where are going to be cease bank now maybe right where 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 are going to we're going to be find the venture debt providers and there are again entities emerging like i got a couple of emails from people in my ecosystem you know we're, we're here to provide venture debt family offices are stepping in actually of sure. like hey we provide venture debt uh, to startups to bridge them to the next round and so on and so forth and so th- there is movement but i think we have to somehow um go hopefully go back to like some sort of a normality where we know what the status quo is it's an absolutely fascinating time it's so dynamic just in the couple of minutes that we have left what was it like those few days, uh, you know, on, on Monday of, of that week, everything was fine. Uh, yep. Like you said, there was, there were whispers out there, Correct. you know, to Twitter, there was information out there. Then on Wednesday, it, it was like, wow, it, do I smell fire? And on Thursday, it was, a, it was burning to the ground. And being in your position, what were those few days like that week? I mean, you must have had investments who had their money at SVB. Absolutely. What what, what were those few days like? Were you? <laughs> it had to be harrowing. It was. I mean, I most of the time, you know, there's so much you can do as the investor, right? I obviously spoke at length with my portfolio companies, and it was more like to keep keep cool and calm them down because. We didn't know where things are going. We didn't know who's going to step in, if someone's going to step in, what's going to happen. You know, some of my startups were able to get money or some of our portfolio companies were able to get their money out before the FDIC stepped in. Others actually initiated the wire and, you know, before the so FDIC came in. However, like some startups were not able to do so and they had basically the whole money that they raised with SVB, right? So... 
there was a lot of internal conversation that we had. How can we support the portfolio companies if really things go sideways? You know, how can we maybe help them bridge the next couple of weeks? You know, how can we provide some capital and so on and so forth? So I was working uh, with my partnership and the startups uh, and the portfolio companies of doing that. And then, so that was like a whole, you know, crazy 48 hours to navigate the process and, you know, basically also calming those startups down because, I mean, the CEOs and entrepreneurs have so many things that you have to juggle and nobody was waking up, uh, you know, and thinking about, hey, my bank is going to be out of business and I have to think about what I'm going to do, right? Um, So, fortunately... You know, uh, the government stepped in and uh, securitized all of those, you know, deposits. And so, you know, I think after that, a lot of people pulled their money from SVB. And I just don't know where we are right now in, in the process, to be honest with SVB. I spoke with one startup that had literally tens of millions of dollars there. And I'm sure you've heard of many in the, in the same boat. And yep. What SVB had done was they had venture debt. They had, they had, they hadn't, they hadn't used the facility yet, but it was there for them based on the covenant, based on the covenant that they keep all their money there. Yeah. It was very common. Yeah. And, and so a lot of people didn't understand, well, why would you have all your money in one place? Well, it was, it was a a strategic maneuver. It it wasn't uh, (laughs) laziness. It was deliberate, but like you said, I think, and you said, I think you said it well, the, the plane has not landed. It's, no, it's I don't still think so. flying around. And there's all, <laughs> there's a lot of people on the ground, you and me and many others, the government watching it and saying, you know, it's smoking. A li- is that smoke? Is that smoke coming out? We're not sure, but um, uh, what's going to happen is yet to be written. That's right. But when it does get written, will you come back and talk with us about it? Hundred percent. If if I have more insights, I would love to come back. You guys have been so much fun. We would really enjoy that, and um, and we like we've enjoyed having you with us today. It's been great. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it as well. Well, thanks for being here, and thanks for the insight and for sharing. And I'm glad it finally worked out. We'll see you in a few months at InsureTech Connect, right? That's absolutely right. Yes. Okay. For sure. We'll look forward to it. Thanks, Same Amir. here. Same here. Thanks, Thank Amir. you guys so much. Thanks.